Hello everyone, you're almost assuredly welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. I am, of course, Paddy Holly, and I am joined by the marvellous Evan Sunderland. Evan, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, and that's me. That's yeah. my whole name. <laughs> yeah. Except the middle part. But I'm good. I'm excited. We're going to talk about the wooing of Emer today. A very... What is your middle name, by the way, in case anyone wants to track you down? <laughs> Liam Zachary, believe it or not. Uh, James Michael, myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. Michael's a popular name uh, where I'm from. I don't know why, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, we're this is episode eighty, and we're we're talking about the wooing of Emer. Wooing is not really a word I use very often, so don't be surprised if I slip up on it every now and then. <laughs> the wooing of Emer, uh, told for us by uh, my good friend Brendan Atkins. Cullen was perhaps the most handsome, beautiful and most incredible man that ever lived in Ulster. Poets to this day sing songs of his beauty. No other man in Ulster could compare to him, for who could? Cullen naturally had hair of three shades, brown, blood red and golden yellow. His eyes contained seven bright, kingly pupils, all the better to see you with. To top it off, he had seven toes on each foot, seven fingers on each hand, with nails that could grip like a hawk's talons. You know, just like every supermodel nowadays. Considering what a hunk he was, well, the men of Ulster grew very worried indeed. Very worried that Cucullin's beauty would tempt away their wives and daughters, for he could easily have any woman he wanted in this country. Naturally, they figured the only solution was to get Cucullin a wife of his own. They searched the country high and low, but not a single girl compared to Cucullin's long list of demands. And finally, Cucullin decided to take matters into his own hands. He and his charioteer Lay went to a place called the Gardens of Lou to meet with Emer, daughter of Fergal the Wily. Emer was a beautiful woman, but her beauty was more than matched by her intelligence and quick wit. She stood upon the green outside of her father's wrath, teaching embroidery to a class of serving girls and foster sisters. May the road you travel be blessed. May you be safe from every harm, she greeted Cucullin. Where have you come from? Why are you here? Cucullin peered around, looking at the watchful eyes and ears of the girls surrounding them. He gave no straight reply. His answer was instead a riddle that Emer alone could understand. And she answered him in the same way. Speaking in this peculiar code, he told her he had come to court her that he was the son of Lu and Dectora, reared among the court of Crahor Macnassa, that he was the most respected and beloved hero in the kingdom, and she in turn boasted that she was well-behaved and modest, graceful, beautiful, equal in rank to a queen, the most respected woman in all of Ireland. We're well-matched, said Cucullin. We should marry, for you are now the woman I love. As he spoke, well, his eyes grew to travelling, he spied Emer's breasts, curving above her dress. I see a sweet country, I could rest my weapon there, he proclaimed. Things were quite direct in those days. Pickup lines had not yet been refined as an art form. 
Emer raised an eyebrow. No man shall travel this country until he has killed a hundred men at every fort from Shkenmen to Banquin, until he has leapt like a salmon while carrying twice his weight in gold, striking down three groups of nine men with a single stroke, but leaving the middleman unharmed, unless he's gone without sleeping from Samhain to Bialtna. As we all know, it is imperative that your lover be ready and willing to be both horrendously sleep-deprived and a mass murderer before you can consider him a serious, marriageable candidate. Well, it's said and done, said Koo. In that sweet country, I'll rest my weapons. Unfortunately, while Koo Cullen and Emer were utterly besotted with each other, Emer's father was less enthused. He feared Koo Cullen's temper, his unpredictability. He feared that if the two were to fall in love and marry, the events would soon result in his death. And so he hatched a plot. Coming to Awanmaka, disguised as a Gaulish lord, he observed Koo Cullen and the other warriors training and pulled King Krahur aside. That's a great bunch of lads you got there, especially that Koo Cullen. But you know, Krahur, I'm ever so sorry for him. He's great indeed, but he's not getting the training he needs here. If only he could visit Donal Mildamel, the warlike in the land of Alba, he'd fight more marvellously still. And if he visited Skawhawk, the shadowy one of the Isle of Skye, and studied the warrior's art with her, well, he could beat any hero in Europe. On hearing this, well, Koo Cullen immediately said he'd go and train with them, and the disguised Fergal made him swear on it. That night, Koo Cullen went to Emer. She warned him that this was Fergal's plan, that he'd arrived in disguise, that he intended Koo Cullen never to come back from his dangerous training. But since he'd made a vow, well, he wasn't able to break it. He turned towards Alba and studied with Donal, where he learned to fight on hot coals, to climb upon spears and perform upon its point without making his souls bleed. And when Donal had taught him everything he knew, he sent him on to Skawhawk. He went down the road until he came to a coastline where a camp of Skawhawk's trainees was situated. Where is she? Where's the shadowy one? He asked. Oh, she's on that island over there, the people said, pointing out to sea. Well, how can I get across there? Kukulin asked. You must cross the Pupil's Bridge, they told him. The Pupil's Bridge was arched, high in the middle, low at both ends. When a person stepped on one end, the other end would rise up and fling him off, a murderous Iron Age seesaw. Kukulin didn't know this, and so he stepped on the bridge and he was flung right off onto his arse. The boys roared in laughter at him, and he tried and tried again, but each time he was thrown back while the trainees only jeered and mocked him. Kukulin began to see red. Anger bubbled in his bones. Soon he had entered his warp spasm, that monstrous, murderous state he was well known for. As the Riastrath seized him, he did his hero's salmon leap onto the middle of the bridge, that high point, and then off at the other side before the bridge could rise and toss him off. He ran towards Gahawk's fort, hammered the door with his spear, and broke the door in two. Well, Skawhawk knew that only a fully trained warrior could have reached her door, so she sent her daughter Uhak to see who the champion might be. Uhak set eyes upon Kukulin and immediately fell in love with him. She begged her mother to take him in, to train him in her most secret ways of war. Kukulin went to the place where Skawhawk trained her sons, Kur and Kat, and he learned her secret, mysterious tactics. Before he was finally given a great javelin, the gay Bulaga, the deadliest weapon of all. Cast from the foot, it would explode into barbs inside of its victim, so that it had to be cut out rather than simply removed. In his time there, 
Cuchulain's companion in arms was another young Irish warrior, Ferdia, son of Devon. They grew to be closer than brothers, sharing excitement and danger, well matched in every way. They shared the one bed and spoke at length of their great love for each other. For a time, Cuchulain was so besotted with Ferdia that he practically forgot about Emer and his promises to her, his wish to come back to Ireland. Ferdia matched him just as well in every way as Emer did. Emer, for her part, was not having as much luck finding suitable matches. Fergal tried to get his daughter married off before Cuchulain's return and offered her hand in marriage to Luggy, a king of Munster. But when Emer told him that she loved Cuchulain instead, Luggy was so afraid he made his excuses and returned to his kingdom alone. While Cuchulain had nearly finished his training, all was not well on the Isle of Skye. Skahawk and her people were at war with her bitter enemy, Aoife, a warrior so fierce that even Skahawk, the shadowy one, feared her. She feared as well what she would do to her prized pupil, so she gave Cuchulain a sleeping draught to knock him out for 24 hours. But because this is Cuchulain we're talking about, well, he woke up after just an hour. He sprang into the fray, massacring hundreds of Aoife's men and her three sons. Let's end this, cried Aoife, staring around at the devastations, the masses of bodies and corpses of friends and foes. She stared at Skahawk, fury in her eyes. Send me a champion who can meet me in single combat. Well, Cuchulain volunteered immediately, of course. But before he went into the fight, he asked Skahawk an important question. He asked her what three things were most precious to Aoife. Her horses, her chariot, and her charioteer. She loves them more than anything in the world, Skahawk replied. That Aoife and Cuchulain did fierce battle. Skilled as he was, Aoife was more so. She struck the blade from Cuchulain's sword, leaving him with only the hilt in his hand. She charged towards him to deal the death blow. But as she closed in, Cuchulain let out a screech. Oh gods, Aoife, your horse, your chariot, your chariot here. They're all falling down the mountain. Well, Aoife, despite her cunning and battle wiles, immediately turned her head to look. And Cuchulain jumped upon her, seizing her and pinning down her arms. He threw her to the ground, grabbing a sword and holding the point at her head. I'll let you live if you grant me three demands. You'll not make war on Skahawk again. You'll stay with me tonight and you will bear me a son. I promise these things, said Aoife. She made peace with Skahawk, stayed with Cuchulain and soon gave him the news that she would bear his son. Cuchulain gave her his thumb ring, telling her to send his son to Ireland when the thumb ring fit his finger, so that he would recognise him. Aoife returned to her territory, and Cuchulain stayed with Skahawk and Uhak, recovering from his wounds, until finally word came that he was needed back in Ulster, and he made his way home. He was given a hero's welcome back in Ulster, a great feast held in his honour. At the end of the feast, however, he knew what he wanted to do. He would take what was rightfully his. He sought off towards the fortress of Fergal to finally be with Fergal's daughter, Emer. The fortress was well protected, but Cuchulain was now, by Fergal's own words, the greatest hero in all of Europe. He leapt like a salmon over the walls of the fortress, landing inside the dune. Three groups of nine men charged with him, and with a single stroke he killed eight, while leaving the middlemen, Emer's brothers, unharmed. Fergal watched all of this. He saw the cold fury that Cuchulain killed with and feared he was next on the chopping block. He tried to make his escape, tried to jump as Cuchulain did over the walls and immediately fell to his death. 
Cú Cullen seized Emer and twice his weight in gold and jumped like a salmon out of the fortress, springing away. A great clamour went up among the warriors. His guards tried to hunt the two down and at every ford between Skemen and Banquin, he cut through his enemies and left a hundred men dead at each foray. And so he completed all the tasks that Emer had set him. And when he reached Dauenvaca, Emer became his bride. A great feast was held once more but the atmosphere grew, soon grew sour. Brickryu Bittertongue, the wicked and twisted bard, got to his feet near the end of the night and proclaimed, Ah, oh, Cucullin will have a terrible night tonight, for it's the right of Grahor, a king of Ulster, to sleep with the wife of any of his subjects on their wedding night. Sure, if he doesn't do that tonight, don't we all know that he lives in fear of Cucullin, and what sort of king fears his rightful subjects? On hearing this, Cucullin began to twitch and quiver, his eyes beginning to grow, his hair standing on its end, burning fury lighting his veins on fire. He trembled so hard, the chair beneath him shattered into a rain of splinters, and he rushed out the door to cool off. Grahur quaked in his boots. This was a right that he had to exercise, to appear a strong, brave ruler, to keep the respect of his men. However, Grahur knew that if he did so, Cullen's rage would be mighty enough to tear him and all of Ulster to shreds. Oh, what'll I do? What'll I do? I'll either lose the respect of my men or I'll be torn limb from limb, he cried. I have an idea, said Cathbad, his chief druid. Yes, you must sleep with Emer tonight. There's no two ways about it. But myself and Fergus over there will sleep in the bed between you to protect Emer and Cullen's honours. All of Ulster will bless that union if Cúcullin accepts. So the two of them called Cúcullin back into the fortress. To cool off his temper, they ordered him the simple task of gathering all the wild deer, swine and wild flying creatures around the mountain and driving them into one flock outside of the fortress. Like a possessed border collie, Cúcullin ran off and immediately did as he was told. And by the time he was finished, his temper had finally waned. They explained the plan to him and he felt it made sense. He agreed. And so, after that night, Emer's dowry was paid, and her and Cúcullin spent the rest of their nights together. Personally, I'm just glad we've got Tinder nowadays. Dating in ancient Ireland sounds exhausting. Well, wasn't that a marvellous uh, version of the wooing of Emer there by Brendan? I thoroughly enjoyed that. How about you, Evan? I enjoyed it too. It's well told with a little contemporary tongue, which I think is the best way to tell these stories because otherwise they seem a bit too, um, I don't know, beyond our time or something, which they are. Yeah, it, well, you ha- there's, there's a lot in them that's, uh, that's, that's very modern as well. Do you know, we tend to assume that um, these stories aren't going to contain anything that we can empathize with or relate to uh, but um, and then you're right there are some wild differences between how we live now and how they used to live for instance their description of a hunk of a very attractive person yeah which is meant to be very flattering and desirable but i think to contemporary years is actually fairly grotesque and maybe I don't know, there's a lot a man could do with seven, seven fingers. fingers. 
Yeah, and he's pretty handy with his feet as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, seven fingers is quite an image, though. And it, it's great for a warrior, you know, with your sort of ability of Warcraft, how well you can handle whatever weapons you have. But then, like, how do you attach that to other things when it's not sexual or... <laughs> you know what I mean? What use would it be otherwise, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> To invent a character with seven <laughs> digits, um, and then not to really give exactly the reason why is, is yeah. curious. A jeweler's dream. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then the seven pupils. Like most people can't even remember the eye color of their uh, of the people they're related to or are in their family. I can't imagine how would you be able to count seven pupils in an eye? But even reading that description and then going on in the story, you would easily forget such a detail like that. Oh yeah, you'd go back to thinking of him as just a just a big, tall, uh, handsome lad. A Hemsworth looking fella, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Evan, tell us, what's your best pickup line? I don't think I have any abuse, but my father had a kind of joking one that I loved as a kid, which was did you fall from heaven? Because you look a state. <laughs> That's very Irish, actually, to have these kind of anti-pickup uh, lines, you know. You know what she'll love if I go up there and tell her she's hideous? <laughs> <laughs> Finding a way to self-deprecate the world at large even further. Uh, or the, yeah. But that kind of wordplay or, I don't know, humour, yeah. maybe you can see with the two between Emer and Koo when they meet for the first yeah. time, there's the... Uh, riddle which you're telling me not a lot of people know what no that no, is. yeah yeah well most it it tends to be overshadowed by the comments about the lovely valley <laughs> yeah which yeah. is funnier more memorable but yeah. um i don't know to speak to it there's a cool kind of romeo and juliet-esque sort of matching of intellects in their first few words that yes are, hidden you know because he doesn't want the women around her knowing that he's he's courting her but uh it kind of makes the two of them out uncharacteristically for himself to be quite intelligent, which makes sense for Emer. Um, but Kukulin would go on in the story then to kind of prove <laughs> the opposite, yeah. Uh, in most regards, which is funny that he's then capable of this wordplay and wordsmithing and doing it with confidence yeah. and kind of in two senses at the one time. It makes me think of that one, you know, are you uh, are you a polar bear? And, you know, and obviously someone says no and mm. they're like well at least that broke the ice yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you could yeah. break the yeah. ice with yeah. the uh, yeah. forbidden never to be written down riddle as yeah, well yeah that's, that's true uh, father-in-laws now uh, my father-in-law is great and not just because he has a lovely piece of land in, in the country <laughs> um Father-in-laws, but this father-in-law is uh, very keen that his daughter not marry Coo Cullen. Uh, I'm sure there are many reasons why you wouldn't want your daughter to marry Coo Cullen, uh, besides the fact that you'd be a bit worried that the grandchildren would come out looking a bit freakish. But yeah, yeah um, there's enough to worry about about a gentleman who finds himself in a hulking rage every now and then that he can't control. Exactly, exactly. So I I really don't blame the father for not wanting her to to marry. Uh, him of all people uh, and then to set up uh, set up the Isle of Skye uh, in order to get him out of the picture that was that was an interesting move and a very familiar story beat I think so if you take that archetype of 
father who's not in favour of the male suitor of his daughter doing all he can to kind of put anything in place of that or another male to kind of distract her gaze like I've seen that so many times in stories going up to modern day but uh, it makes for a great excuse to send him on this venture off to Skawhawk which I yes. think is the best part of the story yeah yeah and it's it's very interesting as well that Skawhawk is, is, is female and that she's there to teach all of these warriors how how to fight yeah. uh, in, the, in, this, in this age and very interesting as well that the story makes it down to us in in the modern day, past the uh, the monks of the of the eighth century, that uh, Skahok the battler is still uh, depicted as this uh, fearless woman who people hundreds of people are coming from all across these islands to learn uh, to learn how to fight, and then there's the classic sort of. Um, warrior training montage at that point then yeah I was thinking you know she's a far cry from Mr. Miyagi but there's still airs of the same you know mentoring role there and kind of coach role if you like Um, yeah because you see it all tonight the the film that immediately comes to mind is The Last Samurai now not a brilliant film but (laughs) it has all of these kind of tropes that your father-in-law doesn't like you yes. you're, you're shit at your warrior life when you first arrive there's a bit of a montage there's a bit of mockery about how terrible you are at fighting in this way proving oneself in spite of that and, yeah. and I, I think when we get to Fergie you know, that's a part of that story as well usually is the one friend that they find in that experience yes um, which Ferdia fits quite nicely into, and that is the birth of a, a fairly legendary bromance, or maybe just straight romance, depending on how you choose to look at it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough one. There's there's a lot of um, historical figures that there's this kind of uh, uh, doubt around their sexuality because they uh, shared a bed at different stages of their life with someone very uh, very important the same is true of uh, Richard the Lionheart famously um, shared a bed with uh, Philip of France and you know it's it's inferring that kind of romantic relationship out of it because they shared a bed now some of the famous lines as well in the fight at the ford um, suggest that they there was probably a little bit more than just friendship to it and Ferdia's actions as a whole in that story are quite well to a contemporary mind you kind of want to read it as they are in love or maybe Ferdia is more in love with Ku than he is himself but uh, humans do that don't they we just put an oversight on things to we do we do a little more maybe we like to see ourselves in stories as well so and when Ferdia says things like, you know, in uh, anger says things, you were only my bedmaker. There is, it's a kind of viciousness that you only expect to see from uh, a couple who are in love. Yeah. Rather than friendship. Yeah, that hurting them in such a way that you'd only hurt somebody who you care for so yeah. much so that you actually know how to yeah. hurt them or what to say. And it's a, it's a yeah. horrible f- few things he says to him at yeah. the beginning of that fight. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it definitely hurts more to, uh, for you to go, well, we were never really that close <laughs> as if you're in a romantic relationship. Yeah. Then we were never really that close if you're just 
good friends. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. this was never what you thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> we were never just mates going no. to the pub. <laughs> we were never having a few jars and coppers on a Friday night. Um, and then, then as part of the the warrior montage, I suppose you would say, mm-hmm. you have two very important things, and that is the warp spasm. So if you thought Cullen looked weird already um, with uh, the extra parts to himself, um, looked, uh, but the people would have thought he looked more divine with the extra parts, that he looked more godlike because he had seven fingers, there was also a kind of a Hulk out moment. Hmm. Which he uses to, you're talking about him scaling the bridge or getting over to yes, the Yes, yes, yeah. yes very hard to picture that moment you described it to me once and then I had to read two other descriptions of it where the eye gets bigger on one side of his body yeah and And I didn't know for a while that there was a sort of a physical difference to him in this state no there's 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 big descriptions of just how um, would it be a thing if some people choose to not describe that or some people kind of really get into the details of you know I think because the uh, the original is just so farcical, really. I suppose you would say that um, that people tend to move on if they if they want the story to be taken more seriously. Seriously, yeah, because you, you know, can get the random laughs from you know the likes yeah. of Seven Fingers and yeah. But when you start talking about the eyeball getting ten times bigger and. Uh, one side of his body almost going around and his arms getting freakishly large at his shoulders yeah. and all that kind of crack then people uh, people people do think of the the Hulk out moment or uh, you know that moment in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen where, where Dr. Um, Dr. Jekyll takes too much of the potion and gets and re- yeah it gets very hided indeed yeah. it gets very very hided indeed <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that reference came from but it's what comes to mind when I think of the the Reistrad is the idea of uh, Dr. Jekyll taking uh, too much of his potion and then you have the the famous uh, weapon the the the, the gay bulga uh, yes. gay being the Irish the old Irish word for a spear uh, part of where the word Gaelic comes from um, but it's it's an interesting thing because it uh, it's kind of mechanical in the way they describe it yeah and they say that um, you know shards break off when you're impaled with it they get into your body but is it a thing of that they magically reappear once taken out of the, like this is a multiple use thing yes that yes, lacks yeah. a, a very modern mechanism to yeah. actually work yeah, but it, that's the thing with mythic weapons isn't it it's, yeah if it has spikes that are coming out of it, like where are they coming from? Are they are they hidden in some compartment in the spear? Is he refilling his yeah, yeah spikes yeah. every now and then? Yeah, that's uh, and uh, there's also describing him as being able to throw it with his foot. Yes, which I think I copped for the first time reading this story just before we started today. Because um, the only images I've seen of the Kale Bulga with himself and toe are in his hand. Yes, but it kind of seems that he exclusively uses it with his foot or that's how it is to be used yeah. from Scott's, Scott's description that seems to be the ideal way in which to throw it yeah which you know it leaves you thinking how exactly you would go about that and there's no other spear or weapon at this time <laughs> no. would have used yeah. their foot for 
Truly special indeed. Uh, Do you mean that they hadn't thought yet that uh, they could throw it with their hand? Just, the thought of it being thrown with the foot makes me think that there's already some like codified somatic warrior practice out there yeah. using your feet to manipulate weapons. Like the Brazilian uh, dance fight. What's that called again? Capoeira. Capoeira. Yeah. They, they, they have blades in their feet. Oh, wow, I didn't know yeah. that. I thought it was just kicking. Uh, no, well, it is just kicking. When With blades in your feet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when the cops are around. <laughs> That's the whole point of capoeira, isn't it? To, uh, to hide the blades. Uh, but then, then there's one of the, um, uh, the greatest stains on uh, Collins' career, I, I suppose you would say. Uh, the the darkest time for uh, for Cucullin, uh when you're trying to when you're trying to empathise with him when you're trying to understand him I suppose is is how he treats uh, Skahok's daughter Aoife yeah and also um, for oh you know a hero who's the protagonist it can be kind of hard to just suddenly stomach the incidental awful things he does in this story not just a Scott Hook's daughter but around that period of the story yeah. um, that aren't really what we associate with protagonists and it's not really given much of an explanation as to why he is this way other than he's a man yes and Irish folk Irish myth is seems to be like that entirely it's not a case of a perfect hero uh, every hero has his flaws like with Finn McCool, you see the the way he he treats Dermot and Grania at the end of his mm-hmm. life, uh, and you uh, you see Conan Mcmurna's just general uh, wild behaviour as well. Um, that there are very few perfect heroes in Irish folklore or myth yeah. or legend at all. Which I suppose is actually a very realistic, mature, and again contemporary point of story is you know not to call him an anti-hero because he isn't no you know we do flock to see stories of uh, objectively bad people now with the likes of uh, something like Choker is coming to mind and you've got certain Mm -hmm. icons like Walter White and things yeah you do get that, uh, that uh, from Paradise Lost as well. The, the the devil has all the best lines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my my uh, f- favorite uh, favorite sayings. Um, the the daughter Eva. He essentially forces himself um, on her. If you think about it, mm-hmm. and then uh, demands that she give him a son, and. Uh, what is really weird about it, about that whole thing, is that it's the oldest trick in the book. It's almost like it's 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 almost like look over there. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. He's a bit more specific with what's over there. And I don't know. The way I read it was he knew exactly what would be of importance to her in that moment, so that she would turn. But yeah, it is a funny kind of. Well, how could she be so stupid to actually turn around in the middle of a fight? Like now, maybe he's relying on that. Uh, that kind of an elaborate double bluff that no one would. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, no one would actually try this. No. So he must be telling the truth. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which I like, and maybe yeah. that would make him again for a moment more intelligent than the rest of the story would tell us he actually is 
maybe she's doing the thinking and he's not. Yeah. In the sense yeah. that she's the intelligent one and uh, he's and and he's not. And of course, um, she gives birth to to Conla, and gives Conla his father's ring. But Conla is also uh, placed under a, a, a gasa. So when he's arri- when he arrives in Ireland, he is unable to tell anyone his name. Uh, Cú Cullen arrives on the beach to defend Ireland from this invading warrior. Uh, does battle with him and 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 kills Conla, only to then realize that he is his son. So in in a weird way. There is uh, there is a kind of justice uh, built into the the, the system. Yeah. Colin um, behaved very badly in this situation, but uh, it cost him the life of of his son. Um, it's a peculiar kind of justice, but um, that's kind of tough for us to wrap our head around. Uh, but um, uh, well, on, on a very simple rudimentary kind of understanding is 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 just there are consequences to your actions even if those consequences only happen in another story you know yes however many pages down the line and uh towards the end of the story then we have him become the classic conan the conqueror style archetype of no, a little bit simple, a little bit, a little bit rough around the edges. Not thinking too much. That uh, basically all the political stuff is happening um, despite him rather than because of him. Yeah, and even though it's all surrounding him and about him, he has very little actual autonomous action in it. So our, our, our yeah, when they have to, yeah, he's so dangerous. Cucullin is so dangerous um, that you can't sleep with his wife is what is said to the king basically but on the other hand you have to sleep with his wife or else you look bad as king <laughs> I just love the idea of the two old lads going well what if you slept in the same bed as the wife <laughs> and we slept between the two of you <laughs> there's a few ways we could do this now technically technically yeah. you would have slept with his wife <laughs> but also <laughs> we would have been in the bed as well <laughs> I just think of that that Amish board, you know, that yeah, board that they put yeah. between new couples, except it's made out of two old lands. <laughs> like the walls of Jezebel from Frank, Frank Capra's It Happened One Night or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, and then while all of this political intriguing is going on, they basically say to Cucullin, will you go out there and herd all of the animals <laughs> on the mountain? <laughs> Which I think is really funny because it sort of suggests that all the people around Cucullin, as in fear of him as they are and they should be, they're also very aware of where he's at mentally and kind of work their way around him or with him by yes you know, like, like he dismiss him like a dog to go outside in that moment you know like he's a force of nature as opposed yeah. to uh, someone who could be uh, reasoned with on yes, any level yeah, yeah. there was no way the king was going to go and sit Colin down and say to him basically this is what's happening this is what's no. happening yeah. Uh, so uh, our final uh, final thought on Cucullin and what's your impression of him after this story? I think he's a great character and a great hero in his physical makeup and his powers. But Cucullin as a man, as a person, or just personality, is a little. He can put a bad taste in your mouth. You kind of have to really think about him for a bit before he might become likable. But um, yeah, I mean, he's still going to be one of the greatest heroes we have in all this lark so yeah, yeah give him that 
Five out of ten. Yeah. Six. <laughs> so um, we'll leave it there. We, we haven't solved the great conundrum that has had Irish people pondering now for a very long time. What kind of man was Coo Cullen? We won't answer that uh, today, and we probably won't answer it tomorrow either. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, dear listeners. I was Paddy Holly. I was joined by... Evan Sunderland. And you were very, very good listeners.